today on Ag News Daily. We do have, and we have two kinds of Fitbits on our cows because uh, <laughs> the timing was off. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Ag News Daily podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Delaney Howell, joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. You know, today is Thursday, October 18th, which means tonight is the official awarding of the annual World Food Prize. That's right, and we were just there today. We got to talk to quite a few international farmers who are there as part of the Global Farmer Network roundtable discussions. We're going to be playing those here for you guys on the podcast. It's really interesting, I think, to talk to farmers from other countries and hear what they're doing and what they aren't doing compared to the U.S.'s agricultural operations. Yeah, and I think um, the interview we're going to play today, which is with Gina Gutierrez, she talks about labor and the Mm -hmm. labor availability they have in Mexico versus dairy farms labor availability here, and it was uh, kind of jaw-dropping. Yes, it was very jaw-dropping. So you'll want to stay tuned. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, Delaney, what's happening in the world of agriculture? Absolutely, Mike. We've got some interesting news. And I want to talk a little bit here about the market facilitation program because after I got off the call with Ashley Arrington yesterday, she just raised some good points, specifically when you look at, okay, we've got this market facilitation program. What happens if farmers don't harvest acres, if they have 100% loss or they have damage on their bean fields or wheat fields or whatever, how does the program work in those instances? So I was doing a little bit of digging today, reading some news, and it sounds like they're not going to get any sort of, I guess, payment off of those. Um, They said, the USDA made a statement saying, quote, quality of the crop harvest is not taken into account. MFP payments will only be made on units harvested regardless of whether they're stored or sold. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I don't, I mean, I guess crop insurance comes into play at that point, mm-hmm. but it still is just, I feel like creating this system of winners and losers. And so far out of that $4.7 billion dollars, that was allocated by the USDA to be paid out to farmers. Only $137 million has been paid to farmers for these retaliatory tariffs. And another $102 million is estimated on its way to farmers at this point in time. So about 88,000 farmers have applied for payments. But again, I just, I, you know, it's not, it's not Hurricane Michael's I mean, it's not the the Georgian farmer's fault that Hurricane Michael wiped out in some areas of Georgia 100% of the best cotton crop that they were looking at. So it, what do you do in that instance? Well, but at the same time, you know, Hurricane Michael was going to come regardless of the trade war. Right, so that's, that's why true. the market facilitation program isn't going to pay out on that. That's where they're going to have to rely on their crop insurance. Hopefully, I, I think most cotton growers, I know all the ones Ashley works with are uh, – are users of crop insurance. But yeah, that's where that comes into play because the, in theory, the market facilitation program is to pay you a little bit extra on top of the bushels you sold that are hit with this tariff, whether sold or stored, you know, priced this year. So if you don't harvest anything, well, there's nothing to give you a little extra bump on the price for. I know it just seems like a bit of a flawed system. 
Well, yeah, nothing's perfect. But actually, Delaney, that's uh, that kind of leads right in. I've got some of the most recent updates of Hurricane Michael's damage. Mm-hmm. And do you want to know which sector of agriculture was the hardest hit by Hurricane Michael? This one surprised me. Um, I was looking at something earlier, too. Pecan farmers? Almost. No, it was actually timber. Timber oh, growers. Oh, yeah, you're right. In Georgia. So here is just a quick rundown of the damage. Timber growers are estimated to have suffered a billion dollars mm-hmm. in losses. Peanuts, 10 to 20 million. Poultry, 25 million dollars. Pecans, half a billion dollars, 560 million. Vegetable crops, including sweet corn, cucumbers, squash, peppers, peas, and more. million. And cotton, as you and Ashley talked about yesterday, there's still a huge discrepancy in the estimate because growers are still trying to figure out what they have left. Mm -hmm. But the estimate published is $300 to $800 million in damages from Hurricane Michael. Yeah, that's what I had read today, too. Yep, yep. Not not great news at all. And I I don't know what kind of insurance program timber growers have. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Timber growers, they have, if you're listening. I don't know that they would have insurance. Well, I mean, I've got cow insurance. You'd think for something that's yeah. going to have a lifespan of 30 years, you'd want some coverage in place, mm-hmm. but I have no idea. Timber growers, if you're listening, give us a shout. Find us on social media at Ag News Daily. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So I have some news here that might be a win for agriculture to get off some of the more jury topics we're talking about. Um, the EPA administration says it's on the fast track to issuing a final ruling replacing the 2015 Obama era administration's waters of the U.S. And it's supposed to be put in place by 2019. So they're saying that they're going to release kind of the final jargon for that new rule by the end of this month. However, then it starts a 90-day comment period. It's got to go through all sorts of hoops before it gets put into action. So they're saying 2019, September of 2019, is going to be a really tight deadline to get that put in place for the total U.S. population because, as we know, there are those states that have been basically ruled out of the 2015 Obama-era ruling, so they don't have to abide by those rules, as I understand it. Well, yeah, it's been put on hold until something gets resolved. And so this would be the resolution. And yeah. kind of, this was another screwy deal. I read the same article, Delaney, and I thought it was – it's just interesting to learn how D.C. operates. So by March of 2019, they're going to finalize that first rule you're talking about, mm-hmm. which just reverts us back to pre-2015. Then by 29, September of 2019, that's when we're going to get the whole new WOTUS. Mm-hmm. So we're – We've got to do a thing, take some time to get rid of the old rule, to then do a thing and take some time to add the new rule. I just, I, why can't it just be done in one step? I don't understand it. How is this a fast track? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, again, D.C. is the only place where 11 months is considered the fast track way to get, you know, something written on a piece of paper. Yeah, I know. I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. Well, the you know other... what? Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, so I was going to say the other thing that we – um maybe are supposed to be seeing fast track to get it put in place by June is E15 or trying to get that ban lifted on year round E15. And the EPA plans to issue higher ethanol gasoline proposals by February. They're preparing their 
um, draft right now, basically, to allow the year-round sales of ethanol. And they're going to try and release it by February, end deliberations on the proposal by May, which would then get it in place, supposedly, by June. However, mm, just I in time. thought... I thought, as we've discussed before with a couple of people, the the does the EPA administration have the authority to do this, or does Congress have to pass some sort of legal ruling? Million dollar yeah. question or billion dollar question. Right. EPA is going to do this. We know that President Trump has told them to. They've said they're going to. They are going to do this. Then the oil industry has said they are going to sue the EPA, mm-hmm. and so then it's going to end up going to a court to decide whether or not EPA had the legal ability to actually do the thing that it's doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So we probably won't have an answer. My guess is they'll get this thing proposed, put in place in June. Oil industry will sue. We'll probably get an injunction. Mm-hmm. E15 in the summer of this next year until it gets through the court system. That's my guess. Um, what about... Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's all that, you know, chain of whatever things that have to happen. Yeah, a long process. It's a long journey, Delaney, but you know what else is a long journey? What else, Mike? The shipment of U.S. soybeans all the way to China. <gasps> Did we have another one that went out? We had... Two more loads uh, were right. loaded during the week ending uh, uh, the 11th. So what was that? Last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one that left the Gulf of Mexico, which surprised me. But apparently there was enough discount on that uh, those Gulf beans that they were able to price them profitably. And then one left from, as we'd expect, in the Pacific Northwest. And they are going to arrive in China in December. Hmm. Yeah, that's a long trip. That is a long trip. Why? I wonder why it's going to take so long. Well, the Pacific Ocean is very big, Delaney. But it takes a month and a half? Two months, maybe? Uh, yeah, maybe that's a very slow boat. They're taking the slow boat to China, as it were. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the only good news we have in the soybean market today, as we mm-hmm. also heard a report that uh, we're expecting soybean imports to drop to their lowest level in 12 years. Years because of partially the tariff con- the tariff conflict and partially you know just the switching of beans for other higher protein goods not higher than beans but higher than you know other grain uh, feedstuffs and of course the African swine fever that we talked about yes wait you said the, that imports are going to drop to their lowest levels yes Chinese imports yes okay you just didn't specify that I just wanted to make sure oh oh gotcha. Yeah, sorry about that. It's still on that slow boat to China. I guess my brain is too. <laughs> but yeah, Chinese soybean imports. No, that, excuse me. They're going to have their biggest drop in 12 years. They're not going back to the level they were at 12 years ago. Okay, that makes sense. Biggest drop in 12 years. Dang. Yep, from the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Well, not yeah, surprised. So, but... No, we definitely saw that take a hit on the market today. Absolutely, we did. Mike, I just have one other quick piece of news to share before we get to the markets. And that is coming uh, from the meatless meat or cultured meat industry. The Beyond Meat company, the vegan food company that's doing, you know, cultured meat and all that whatever gross stuff, is the first company that's officially filing an IPO. And they have made multiple requests 
to investment banks, initial public offerings and people um, from J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse, I think is maybe how you say it. I think it's Suisse. Okay, Suisse. Um, They've all been hired for the initial public offering period. So this is, I think this is a big deal because this is honestly the first time that it's now a going to be a publicly traded company. I I think it's going to be interesting to see how the general public reacts to it. And it's interesting, I saw this in the article, it says nearly 40% of Americans are trying to eat more plant-based foods. Hmm. Well, you know, eating more plant-based foods is fine as long as you eat it as a side dish to a steak. Right. Well, I think um, this is going to change the definition of a steak or could change the definition of a steak. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. It's it's going to be a very interesting couple of years, that's for sure. Yes. Well, it was an interesting day in the markets. Delaney, what do you think? Should we uh, jump on into that before we talk to Gina? I, I guess we better. I suppose we better as well, folks. And our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, they can help you put a marketing plan in place and stick to it. So give them a shout. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or... You can visit them on the web at zaner.com. And as I mentioned earlier, it's red on the screen all the way down in the grain markets today. December corn closed down four cents at 370 and a quarter. The March also down four to finish at 382 and a half. In soybeans, this was the ugly scene today. The November contract down 21 cents, finished at 864 and three quarters. The January also closed lower by 21 cents to finish at 878 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the December contract was down four and a half cents at 513 even, with the March down five and a quarter to close at 532 and three quarters. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got mixed trade in live cattle with the October up 15 cents at 113.0750. The December down 20 to close at 117.1750. And a look at feeder cattle. The October contract up $1.1750 to finish at 155.25. The November up $1.07 and a half to finish at 154.42 and a half. And big move downward today in the hog market. The December contract down $2.40 at 52.30 with the February down 235 to close at 60.22 and a half. And let's jump in here what the dairy market is doing down in Mexico by talking to Kleckner Award winner Gina Gutierrez. We're catching up with Gina Gutierrez, who is one of the farmers at this year's Global Farmer Roundtable. Gina, congratulations, first of all, on your Kleckner Award. Tell us a little bit about the work that went into getting that award. Uh, thank you. Um, I guess the what the Global Farmer network uh, board members saw in me is that I, I want to be a leader in my community. I've been working for three years in advocating. I have my own Facebook page. I'm up to 30,000 followers, oh. which is not bad because I'm alone in there. And um, I guess they, they see that potential. So I'm very grateful because that encourages me, that keeps inspiring me, and I guess I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, you have a lot of work to do, not just on that aspect, but also day-to-day. You're part of a dairy operation. Tell us a little bit about the farm. Well, I farm with my dad and my brother right now. Uh, it's a family operation. They are the vet and the agronomist. Oh. And uh, I'm fifth generation, so yes. And 
We have been working very hard for a long time and yeah, like you said, every day is hard work because in Derry you don't have to, uh, you don't have time to There's rest no around. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cows don't know it's Christmas yep. and New Year's or right. Sunday. They don't care, they still have to eat. Exactly. So tell us about the herd size, is it just Holsteins? What breeds are you raising and what's the number of cattle that you guys have down there in Mexico City? Near we Mexico have, City? Yeah, we have 420 cows and lots of heifers and we have a little bit of bull calf in feedlot and um, we started off in like Holstein mm -hmm. and in 2003 we started crossbreeding with the Proco system with Montbelliard and Swedish Red and right now we're going back to Holstein just to uh, take advantage of the technology that is coming with genomics. Huh. It's just farther along, it, farther advanced in the Holstein breed than it is in some of the others, the mapping tools and so forth? It is, and I don't know the exact science behind it because for me they're individuals, and I'm guessing people you would uh, get to test genomics in every single individual, but I think they're not so specific with crossbreed animals. Okay. Mm. Now, I did want to ask you, Gina, up here in the United States, a lot of our listeners are dairy farmers. We've been struggling with low milk prices for about three years right now. Tell us about the marketing environment in Mexico. How are milk prices faring? How is the dairy industry faring overall? I think the situation is very similar in all over the world because dairy is dairy. Milk is a commodity, sadly, because it's huge. You get a huge package of nutrients in there mm -hmm. for a very cheap price. Yeah. And um, I think people should acknowledge that more because you're not just giving a drink to anyone, right. it's food. And the situation is very similar. I'm one of the lucky ones that I'm in a cooperative in Mexico where the second private brand there. Mm. So our price is very stable. Okay. We do get paid for protein and fat and other quality standards, but I guess that we're one of the few lucky ones that are there. Now, oh, I was just going to ask, in the cooperative, how many other members are there? I don't think of Central Mexico as a main dairy area, is it? It is. Uh, it depends on, well, close to Mexico City, we're very few. You okay. go in a little bit further to the north, uh, we're in 10 states, Mexico, wow. uh, mostly uh, in northern Mexico, which has become a, a larger dairy area. And uh, we're 123 farms with 300 partners, but we're all family operations, and I guess my cooperative is just a big family company owned by families. Gina. I assume that cooperatives are ran the same in Mexico that they are here in the U.S., but will you walk us through how cooperatives in Mexico work? Well, I'm, my cooperative is Alpura, it's called. I guess it's the only real cooperative in Mexico okay. right now. Uh, other companies start as cooperatives, but we're the only one remaining as a family and farmer-owned operation mm -hmm. because other brands have turned to more industrial uh, approach. So you as a cooperative member, do you basically own a share or you're a part owner in the cooperative? Yes, okay. uh, it's based on shares and that shares uh, give us a quota. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it maintains our market stable and uh, therefore our prices. Now, you've got a vet and an agronomist in the farm, so it sounds like you guys are also growing your own crops. Do you chop your own silage? Yes, uh, we have the size of a 
farm is not that big. We're only 53 hectares, okay. and 40 of them we plant uh, itself for silage. Okay. One year we grow corn and gra grass, rye grass, and the next year we grow corn, barley, and triticale. Oh, how are yields this year? Is harvest harvest is done down there, right? It is. Okay. It has been. Okay, good. <laughs> We're about to start uh, our first grass cut. Okay. In a few weeks, I guess. Uh, my brother takes care of that. He's he's amazing, and um, the yields were pretty good. We were worried that we weren't going to get enough rain. We were worried, you know, it started uh, after planting, but then it got better. Bad for many many farmers out there because hurricanes were just coming oh, one yes. after another. But we're in Highland and it's very dry, so mm -hmm. rain is. <laughs> rain always helps, but yeah. we struggle uh, to keep to find a window between rains. Right. Yeah, right. Gina, I've also got to ask. We just had NAFTA. We're kind of in the hopefully final stages of it. What are producers and farmers' view on NAFTA in Mexico from a Mexican perspective? I guess we could have uh, played a bigger part there because. Farming is always like uh, the thing you you need to ex to do uh, to exist, to exist yeah. and to yield sometimes mm -hmm. in the negotiation. Canada had to yield eventually, and yep. um, well, I guess we're. We're pretty lucky that the negotiations went through. We just have to wait to to it's all signed in three countries. But I think it a lot of work, uh, a lot of opportunities was, but were missed because it got delayed by my elections and then pushed a little mm -hmm. forward with the U.S. elections. And I think Canada, Canada, yes, they Canada also have elections yeah. too. So the timing, I think, it was just off. First, yeah. stop it a little bit, then rush into it. Uh, I, I guess we could have done a better job all through country. Maybe some opportunities were missed because of the timing. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what's the general opinion of getting the, the new USMCA agreement mm. signed? Are farmers down there generally in support of it? I guess so because we're not self-sufficient in okay. a lot of things. We have to import dairy and as a dairy farmer mm. you would think that I'm against that but I'm not because as long as people get access to milk, right. I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Once they try chocolate milk, they're always going to buy chocolate <laughs> yeah, milk. It's of delicious. course. Yeah. They give up soda exactly. for chocolate milk. That would be heaven. Yes. But also, as a farmer, I rely on trade on many aspects because I not only buy uh, corn for my operation, but soy meal and canola meal. And all mm. that may be coming from Canada as well. And also, I need trade because technology is a big mm -hmm. part of my farm. So we have Fitbits and all of our cows and, you know, the software and all. So it's a big, important part of our operation. Did you just say you have Fitbits on all of your cows? I did. <laughs> they <laughs> were a game changer. Yeah, it, tell us about that. I saw just a commercial the other day, and I thought it was totally bizarre that it was like an organic farm in, I think, California, said that they were putting Fitbits on their cattle. Well, I'm not an organic operation. Right. I have nothing against them, but I, I just don't right. support it. But uh, we do have, and we have two kinds of Fitbits on our cows, because uh, <laughs> the timing was off. Okay. So we started with pedometers, which, are, which help us keep track on the uh, milking barrel as well. Mm. So they show activity, and the cow gets uh, ID'd on the milking parlor, and they show us the electric conductivity of the milk. Yeah. So that is like a... a a sign that okay. we need to keep uh, attention on a cow. And then we got the Fitbits on their necks that they're a microphone and they 
they establish a pardon for an individual, a cow, for their rumination. And just, you get the signs even before the cows get sick. So you are treating individuals now, which is really cool. My dad is a vet. And he comes to a cow, and we check the manure, mm -hmm. you know, the consistency, we check temperature, it's a giving. If a cow, yeah. you, you look sad, okay, I'm going to check up on you. Yeah. And that's the thing. And then my dad comes with his telescope, and he sees nothing, you know? Mm. He doesn't ca know what the cow has, mm -hmm. because she's not even sick yet. Mm. So it's a huge uh, challenge for him, as well as a vet. To, to go to a cow that is not even sick, but you know she's gonna get something. And sometimes a little bit of vitamins are we mm -hmm. use, and it helps, or maybe just, okay, I'll check it later or tomorrow, and that's a game changer. That wow. is really neat, and it makes a lot of sense. I'm assuming with the pedometer aspect of the Fitbit, you can see which cows are up and mobile and which are laying down a little more than usual, and wow. So when you look ahead, you guys are pretty cutting edge. What's the future hold? You know, what are you excited about technology-wise on the dairy farm? Well, um, I would love to have robots. Yes. You know, that they're very cool, and the, the, to think that a cow can get milk whenever she wants, it's pretty cool, you know? But in Mexico, we do have uh, opportunity to have labor. Okay. And we're overstaffed, but that would be very cool to have. And to the cow mm -hmm. just decide whenever yeah. she gets very milk, neat. it's very neat. And I guess the future is not only for the farms, but for the consumers. The better we get, the better food we can provide for mm -hmm. them. I just have one follow-up there, because you mentioned you don't have a problem with labor, which is not an issue that Americans have. Um, for our listeners who are in the dairy business, you're running 420 cows. Can you, would you mind telling us how many laborers you have on the farm to help? Well, it's my dad, my brother, and I, and we have 28 employees. Okay. So it's a lot of of people working there, but that gives us a chance not only to create jobs, which is a great uh, thing for our community, mm -hmm. yeah. because the community around us was built around us because of the farm. Because my great grandfather settled there, and he built a school, you know, so wow. the so the kids of his employees could go to school, and so it it is kind of a, a social work and yeah. social service that uh, we are proud to to give. But it also gives us a chance to ask the best from our people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and your cows. Exactly. You've got enough people who can keep yeah. eyes on cows. Exactly. Yeah. If you're, your job is feeding, just you can stop but because, please, I, I need help over here. And so that overstaffing gives us a chance to be better with our cows, give them better attention. That's really awesome. Gina, we appreciate your time today and enjoy the rest of your trip here in the U.S. Thank you so much. Wow, Delaney, I still just can't wrap my head around uh, 28 people working on the mm -hmm. farm. That is something else. I can't wrap my head around having Fitbit for cattle. Oh, yeah. I think that is so cool. I know. I do, too. Huh. I really do. It probably, it'd probably make me sad, though, to know that my cattle were more physically fit than I am. <laughs> That they're walking around more than you are, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think it'll be a good uh, investment tool for you someday when you get back into cattle, because then when they, you know, like run off because your facility is just such great pens, you'll be able uh -huh. to GPS track them. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's some real value add there. There is for sure. Well, 
Delaney, if people want to take a walk with us, they can take a walk around the world here this next week, okay. tomorrow and this next week, because we'll be talking to growers from uh, really a lot of different continents, not quite all of them. But uh, stay tuned. But if listeners want to listen to other podcasts, Delaney, where should they go? They can head to our website, agnewsdaily.com. They can also find us on social media by searching for at Agnews Daily. Mike, with that, should we let people go? Let's let them go.